Sophocles wrote the oracle so that it was unconditional, meaning Heracles never had any choice, right? So does that make it more tragic or less tragic than if he has a choice? I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. I can't. I can't. I just want to die. My daughter was killed. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge that you did what you did, but your sister is dead. If you could have just said, I'm sorry, or faced up to what happened, because nobody admits anything they've done. You're trying to kill me. about a family that seems to be cursed and about cults and demons and mental illness but it's really about fate and free will and how families deal with generational trauma and it's a movie that I can't get out of my head I can't stop thinking about it and I do think it's uh, probably a modern masterpiece hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts I'm Jinx your host and that was Terry Menard talking about Ari Aster's 2018 horror film Hereditary Mr. Menard runs Gaily Dreadful, a website which focuses on the queer side of horror, tackling genre movies and television, and is the one-stop shop for all things gay and dreadful and sometimes gaily dreadful. Mr. Menard, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jinx. I really appreciate it. Now, can I ask, out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss, any at all, why go with Hereditary? Uh, Well, when you asked me uh, to come up with a movie... I honestly, I went through um, so many different choices um, and I had narrowed it down to three. And I I don't know, there's just something about this movie. After I saw Midsummer, uh, I was like, I, I just I can't stop thinking about it. And I had to talk about it. So when you gave me that option, I was like, you know what, let's just go with it. We'll run with that one instead of maybe one of the ones that uh, defined my earlier your childhood or something okay i gotta ask what were the other two i'm just curious <laughs> well one of them was uh, a nightmare on elm street 4 but nice. um I, I had noticed that that a couple of uh people uh, in your uh, show have talked about nightmare on elm street so i was like ah maybe i won't go with that one and then i also thought about um tragedy girls to be perfectly honest oh nice very cool nice yeah. that was and uh there was a write-up that you did recently for uh for your website concerning that movie of course so yes very neat, which yeah. uh, people should definitely check out and read. So, uh, But yeah, I am so happy that you chose Hereditary. I've mentioned it on this show before, but uh, it's rare, uh, oddly enough, that uh, contemporary films are chosen. You know, it hasn't happened too terribly often, so I'm always happy when it does. And, uh, you know, we've had the autopsy of uh, Jane Doe and Get Out. And now with Hereditary, you have chosen one of my very favorite movies, uh you know, horror or otherwise in the last several years. So uh, I am excited to dive in. So I got to ask, what was your first experience watching the movie? What did you think? Um, Well, I I saw it in a packed theater and um, I didn't, I had, for some reason I managed to uh, not get spoiled about anything going in. And so like, I'm I'm watching this and I'm thinking, okay, so it's going to be the little girl is obviously going to get possessed by some spirit or something. Was not prepared for her to lose her head. And then I was like, <laughs> okay, so this is going to be like a, a haunting movie and she's going to haunt the family. And of course, that's not how it how it turned out. So every single time I I thought I had the movie figured out, it was a couple paces ahead of me. And that's rare for for me because uh, mostly I, I i mean i'm as an english major i go into things and my mind is always constantly trying to find connections trying to find what the plot is trying to do sometimes it kind of ruins the experience for me but this is one of those movies that for whatever reason i could not figure out and every every single scare hit hard for me yeah it really seems to defy expectations uh i remember watching the movie for the first time and not quite being able to suss out where it was going either and i i love movies like that that uh (laughs) you know they don't follow any sort of charted course at least not one that you can uh you as an audience member can see and that's rare to be a horror film fan and for that to happen these days i can't i can't recall many uh many times that's happened like i even loved midsummer but uh 
you know, when you sit down to watch that, like, you can kind of see where everything is going. If you're a fan of folk horror, if you've ever seen The Wicker Man, the good one, not the uh, the other one. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you kind of know where Midsummer is going from the very beginning. You might not know, you know, the uh, the twists and turns that it takes along the way, but you know where it's going to wind up. But I agree with you, like with Hereditary, you know, I, I so much of the marketing of that movie was focused around the, the girl that you're like, well, clearly she is the centerpiece of the movie. Clearly the movie is going to revolve around her. And then in the first 20 minutes, she is gone. And it's just like, you kind of feel like you're in the hands of a maniac at that point. You have no idea what's happening. You have no idea where it's going to go. And it's really exciting and also really dread-inducing for that to happen. Yes. And and the thing is, is that, like, not only is she gone, he, like, knocks her head off. And I just, <laughs> I could not, I, I could not believe it. I just, I was, I was stunned. I was as stunned as, uh as um peter's character as he was uh driving home i was like i can't believe that just happened it just it yeah and i I, you know it's probably about two minutes too late but uh uh any listeners out there consider this a spoilery talk (laughs) we uh we are going to be diving deep into this film so uh you know if you haven't seen it yet oops um (laughs) sorry but you know what if you're a horror fan and you've heard about this movie it's been well over a year damn it you should have seen it by now and you only have yourselves to blame um he knocks her head right off my god the uh you know (laughs) i think that's the moment too when i realized that the entire movie up until that point seemed relatively restrained and yes you know that was such a shocking moment uh when i saw it i remember um I often try and avoid evening crowds on a weekend. If I watch a movie, it's going to be for a Thursday night premiere, or I'm going to catch it in the middle of the following week, preferably during a matinee. And I was following Twitter, trying to avoid spoilers, which I did, but also trying to gauge reactions to this film, which I thought seemed really exciting. And I remember so many people talking about the horrific things they had to put up with with audiences that weekend. You know, people who were showing up for, you know, a a, a spookathon of sorts, you know, a a kind of a jump scare engine of a movie, you know, a typical haunted house kind of thing. And instead they get this strange thing, which undoubtedly makes people feel a little, you know, odd, you know, a little nervous, you know. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you know, given the audience that you might be with, you get a lot of people who start heckling the film. And of course... You know, the one thing that I remember seeing over and over, I think it was John Squires, you know, Freddie in Space, who mentioned it first, I recall, um, talking about how people started parroting the, uh, you know, Charlie's clucking sound throughout the movie while the movie is still going on. So uh, which God, what a nightmare. I, I that movie is so delicate. I would think in in the tone it's trying to maintain that if you have some uh, somebody in the theater, you know, trying to upstage the movie, it would just kill all of that. But I was lucky in that I saw it uh, saw it on a Wednesday. I saw it early. It was myself and a pal, and then one other guy in the auditorium, and all three of us jumped in unison when uh, when Charlie <laughs> loses her head. And I don't. I. I. What were your thoughts on that moment? Uh, what What went through your mind? Um, when 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 uh charlie bites it as it were well you know it, it's it's funny because he does such a good job of setting up that moment where when they're driving out to the party the camera kind of passes by the light pole from the other side and you see that symbol on it and i was like what is up with the symbol why do i keep seeing the symbol and then you know she's at the party and she gets sick and i'm like okay I don't I don't know where this I don't know what this is what this is going to happen. I don't know where this is going. And I when she, I, I should have saw it coming. It's one of those things where it's like it was set up so perfectly that I should have saw it coming, but when she's sticking your head out the thing I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, you got to breathe, you got to breathe." And then boom. I just I it it floored me. The whole the whole audience was floored. And it's funny that you brought up um the audience reaction because I kind of am lucky where we have an alamo draft house in town so oh, like nice. okay. all of my movie watching pretty much goes goes to there now and there's been a couple times where we just for sake of of ease or timing have gone to see a movie at like a regular theater and i just i can't do it anymore <laughs> i just i love i love i'm spoiled by the alamo where everything is quiet and everyone is is uh polite in the movie so i didn't have to deal with any of the clucks or any of the the kind of nervous teehees that people you know give 
But yeah, no, that moment just like floored me. Yeah, I uh, I recently watched Midsummer. I've seen it twice uh, so far. I really want to see it again. But um, the first audience I watched it with, to their credit, uh, what is it? A two hour and forty minute long movie? Not, yeah, it's really long. Not a peep throughout the entire film until the sex scene. And then, you know, <laughs> by the time, you know, the, the women are chanting and you have the old woman, you know, pushing the guy, like spurring him on, trying yep. to get him to hurry pushing up. his butt. Yeah. Yep. Like, it's just people started cracking up and eventually howling with laughter. And I was like, I, I can't blame them at that point. The movie is very confrontational in a weird way. You can't help but laugh nervously. And, you know, you kind of get that a little bit with Hereditary, but certainly not to that degree. But, um... But I kind of love that. I, I love that he swings big with some of the moments that he takes and how how he still manages to tonally keep everything in line. And not only that, how he, you know, how he can handle the movie in such a way that at times it seems restrained and then at times it seems positively batshit, you know. Uh, yes. Take the Charlie moment. I mean, I love the sleight of hand with that moment. You know, we think... Aster is being super restrained, you know, not showing much in the way of gore or the gruesome aftermath of that accident. We never quite see anything, you know, for the longest time. So we think, oh, it's done. It's over. And then he hits us with both barrels. You know, he shows us. Yes. Charlie's head head covered in ants. Covered in ants. To Annie's wailing. And it's just so horrifying and so disturbing and so brilliant. And then. And then he reins it all back in. You know, he dials it back in, and then it's not until the finale that things go crazy again. But I'm just like, my God, to be able to juggle that, to be able to make that work and feel of a piece, you know, together. It's just, my hat's off to him. I think he's one of the most exciting filmmakers working right now. I That is a ticket bought any time he makes a movie. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, is that like uh, with, with Midsummer, um, I, it didn't hit me as strong as Hereditary did. Same here. But I don't know if that, I don't know if that requires like multiple viewings because um, I do think I, Hereditary's movie that every time I've watched it, I've picked up something new and I, my appreciation has grown for it. So I don't know if that'll be the same thing with uh, Midsummer, but it didn't hit me as, as much. But um definitely my ticket he he has earned my ticket i will go see whatever he does whether it's horror or whatever i will go see his movies because he just he's just a master i i don't think there's many people working today that are as assured as his directing is um and the themes that he wants to discuss uh i just yeah i i don't know what else to say he's a he's a fantastic director i would love for that guy to sit down and for somebody to pick his mind i would uh you know, I this is this is rare for me. I uh, you know, you can look at a lot of filmmakers, especially when they have a large body of work, and see if there's any sort of thematic consistency across the board. Like, look at somebody like Cronenberg. You know, you can lay all of that stuff out and be like, I see what this guy's concerns are. You know, with Aster, I I, I just want to wonder. I'm like, man, where does where is all of this coming from, sir? Like, I this I. You know, both movies, in a way, are sort of meditations on grief and, you know, the various ways they manifest. Uh, and I – but they're they're so deeply disturbing. Although I will say, in Midsummer's case – and I did – you know, I saw it first uh, in the theater and then I watched it later on and I was pretty much the only guy in the auditorium. And uh, the second time, I was really able to appreciate the movie – uh, much more than I did the first time around. I, I think it is a really, really fantastic film. It's a really strong follow-up. It's just, it's, you know, I think its biggest sin is that it's uh, it's following up Hereditary, which, you know, he he came out of the gate with a, a masterpiece, you know, and uh, Midsummer is right. really pretty damn great, <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I, mean, I, it, I love what he's doing. It's kind of the same thing with, like, with Jordan Peele, right? Because, get out is is a masterpiece and then a lot of people were kind of not necessarily soured but definitely a little bit more critical about us um so i i think it's just you come out the gate with such a big movie and there's really very little chance you're going to either hit or exceed that expectation on your second go and what a year we've had to have had follow-ups from both of those guys and uh you know, Us is another movie. I, you know, I get out as a masterpiece and you watch Us. And the first time I was a little let down. You know, there's still things, there's still issues that I have with that movie. But I will say that I felt better about that film with every subsequent viewing. And uh, I don't know what it says about the movie, but I watched it in theaters more times than uh, 
then I did Get Out, you know? So, and with every viewing, I was like, no, this is a damn good film. I just wonder if you swap the order. If it was Us and then Get Out, if it was Midsummer and then Hereditary, if we wouldn't be like, oh, of course, you know, they started out right. with a damn strong film and now they're just knocking it out of the park. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's still super exciting to see guys like that making movies like this and, you know, they're getting wide releases. It's a great time to be a horror fan, I think. It definitely is. And, you know, the thing I, the thing about Hereditary that I think is fascinating is that I've, I've seen – a lot of people not like the finale, the ending, the last the, the last act. Really? Yeah, a lot of people, especially on Twitter now, are talking about how like they wish that it was a little bit more ambiguous, whether it was you know really about Annie's mental illness or not, and the fact that it goes to such extremes in the third act kind of ruined it for them. Hmm. But like, I, I think that's interesting because a lot of people disliked. Um, it comes at night because it was too ambiguous and it didn't go <laughs> bonkers at the end. So you like, you have that a 24 just can't it. win. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. And so then you have this, this new movie that is like, no, we're going there. And I don't, I don't honestly think the movie works if you don't go there because he sets up such interesting themes in the first like 15 minutes of the movie where uh, you know, in horror movies, whenever you have um, a classroom setting, you know that that theme is going to be addressed in the movie at some point. And so in the class, they're talking about the the play that Sophocles wrote about about Heracles. And he the teacher asks, is it more tragic or less tragic if he has a choice? And I think the film is saying that it's more tragic if they don't have a choice because this family was pretty much fucked from the get go. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because that was something that I really wanted to discuss. It's something that uh, I, you know, whenever I meet somebody new who's watched this movie, I I always have to gauge this reaction from them. I'm wondering, do you feel as though the movie is being quite literal when it comes to its possession storyline and the cult and all of that madness? Or do you think that... I and I know this is a leap, uh, and I, I nobody agrees with me on this. Never. Uh, I honestly read the film as being um, uh, just a descent into madness. I, I don't buy that everything that we see in the movie is literal. I think that we are on the shoulders of damaged people throughout the film and people who have a mental illness, and as a result, we are witnessing events through their eyes, I don't understand, you know, and I think I, and I'm likely wrong about this because even the director has said, no, it's meant to be, you know, what it is. But to me, if it isn't that, if it isn't a story that's simply about madness and nothing else, I no longer understand the point of the title. Uh, I don't understand the meaning of the opening shot where we, we open on a window which is a real window, and we uh, pan around to uh, uh, one of Annie's uh, houses, you know, one of the doll houses that she's mm-hmm. made, one of the, and we move in on that house, and we move in on the bedroom, and then all of a sudden, Gabriel Byrne strides through, and he wakes his son up, and then off we go. The movie is telling us in the opening frame that there is kind of like an artifice here, you know, that we're not actually seeing reality. We're not witnessing reality. We're witnessing a representation of reality. And then with the title, I mean, you know, we're, we're told that the family has suffered from psychotic depression. We're told that the family has suffered from schizophrenia. And they've all been sort of uh, uh, wrapped up in this idea of cults and possession and demons and whatnot. And, you know, those are things that are that can be hereditary. And so, like, if this is not a movie about a shared madness, if this is not a movie about a a, a family that is is dealing with mental illness in, in a really horrific way, then I don't understand the meaning of the title. Sure. Uh, but nobody it, agrees with me on this, so I, I have, <laughs> I've accepted that. <laughs> well, um, I'm not going to completely agree with you. <laughs> but what I, what, I would like to, what, I, what I would like to say is um, you brought up how the camera focuses on the model, and then all of a sudden we're looking at, at the real house. Well, I think 
in in that and I think with with that opening and also with with Annie's um, continual desire to tinker with these with these uh, miniatures with the um, these dioramas of, of life that she sees I think it's a her way of exerting control over a life that she has absolutely no control over and I also think that Ariaster is establishing that they are as these characters are just as immovable as Annie's miniatures that we are watching her miniatures on display because their events, their life, everything has been set up to go just the way that it goes. And there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it. Just like the miniatures that she is gluing down can't do anything about their life. That's how I kind of see it. I like that. I like that. I like that Annie, you know, in a way her models are kind of pawns. And so Mm -hmm. too are all of the characters in the story that we're watching. Although, you know, I will say, you know, the cult isn't exactly, um, you know, they're not all powerful. You know, we are we are introduced to that idea fairly early on in the movie. Well, early on in hindsight, rather. You know, it's a, it's a discovery that we make late in the film. Uh, but it's set up early. The idea that, um, you know, the grandmother and the cult, they had designs on Peter initially. And mm-hmm. because of the strained relationship between Annie and her mother, you know, Annie kept him from the grandmother. And as a result, you know, the, the cult wasn't able to sort of get their hooks in him. Uh, and as a result, you know, her it was a later child, you know, uh, Charlie, that, uh, you know, kind of becomes the initial vessel for uh, payment. And so, you know, the, the cult is kind of... Uh, you know, they're not all all powerful, I don't think. And I, I like that idea that they're kind of, uh, you know, the cult's kind of, you know, they, they can fuck up at times, too. You know, it's cool. Uh, you know, yeah, their, I mean. Their evil plans don't always come to fruition. Eventually, maybe, but, you know, there are hiccups <laughs> along the way. I mean, you know, there's there's the scene where um, I assume it's it's Joan. She's pushing the... Uh, the like uh, medium flyer in through the mail that gets ignored. And so because of that, she, she stages, you know, this kind of meeting in the parking lot um, that, that causes Annie to, to do the ritual and eventually that, you know, leads to the ending. But like, there are certain little things that I noticed this time, especially this, this watch where it's like, Annie wouldn't have called Joan if the ink pot didn't fall over. Um, you know, and then later on when she decides to go out to the store to buy more supplies, it's because she sees a note that she left herself saying, you know, keep at it, keep going. And so that's what sends her off to the store to meet the people. So there's all these little tiny things that seem like they're pushing her to go do this, where no matter how much she struggles against it, you know, not finding the letter or, um, you know, thinking that Joan is is crazy and not wanting to call her again or thinking that she's just this little nut that's wanting to latch onto her at the meeting because it doesn't happen everything keeps trying to push her in that direction because ultimately she has that's where it's going to end up it just who knows how long it's going to take i wonder if we're meant to think that you know it's for a movie that's so tightly written uh you know and a movie that reveals so much on multiple viewings you know, it, it's a leap to think that, or it's potentially lazy writing, if those coincidences lead us to really, really important turns in the film. And I wonder if we're meant to think that maybe Payman is sort of guiding events and manipulating events, much in the way he does people at times. You know, he he's obviously manipulating Charlie early on. Mm-hmm. And then later, he practically puppets Peter in class, which is God, a horrific, horrific sequence. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder if he calls attention to things, you know, to sort of guide moments along or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I think you're right, actually, because, um, um, it's funny that you should mention that because when, when, um, when she was, when Annie is looking over the, the ritual, um, and she's like piecing everything together or she thinks she's piecing everything together. There's a line in there that I noticed this time where it talks about, um, how, Paimon becomes livid and vengeful when offered a female host. And so I think, I, I do think you're right. I think that he wants to get out of this, this female body and wants to get into this, this male human body as much as possible. So I, I'm wondering if you're right, if maybe he is exerting this extra force on the family to get out of this situation that he's very uncomfortable being in. 
So can I ask your opinion on something? Since we're talking yeah. about payment and, you know, the possession, you know, it, it is said that he is covetous of the male form because he is, uh, you know, a payment is male. But, you know, obviously he, he wasn't able to use Peter initially as a vessel, so he had to settle on Charlie, who, you know, I, I do think it's interesting that the little girl is named Charlie, which is, you know, uh, um, I don't know, at least an androgynous name, if not mm-hmm. arguably masculine, you know, and I wonder if that was any sort of, you know, like the grandmother's influence on the naming of that second child, you know, sort of <laughs> trying their best as it were. But, you know, at the end, when Peter is finally overtaken, he isn't addressed as Payman initially. He's addressed as Charlie. Yes. And so what the fuck is that about? I've seen the movie several times, and I still don't quite know what it means to me that that happens. I, you know, I don't I don't either. And it really stuck out this time. And I actually went on a couple Google uh spirals to try to find out the answer to it. And I, I didn't find anything that was, um, uh, um, that like that made me believe anyway or another. I don't, I I honestly don't know why they say Charlie at first. It really took me back. I wish I had an answer to that one, but, um, I do think going back to your point about, um, that maybe the grandma had some, um, effort on, on naming her Charlie. There was, um, I, I turned on the uh, I don't normally do this, but this time I turned on the um, the subtitles so I could like take a little bit of notes on the words because sometimes I find myself having to like rewind if I want to write down a specific piece of dialogue or whatever. And there was when she's when Annie is talking in the grief counseling session and she's talking about the whole fucked up situation of her mom's life, she says that she. I didn't let her anywhere near me when I had my son, my first, my son, which is why I gave her my daughter. And so that kind of made me this time around go, huh, I gave her my daughter who she immediately stabbed her hooks into. So I think you're probably right. I think there was some effort on grandma's part to with with the naming, with um, kind of. In, in a creepy way, the grooming of Charlie to be that way, like that, that miniature that she draws of like her mom offering up her breast to Charlie in the beginning. That oh, was yeah. like a, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's deeply unsettling. Like the, the, the relationship that was there and even down to, uh, you know, once the grandmother has passed away, you know, Charlie's in bed asking, uh, what's going to happen to her once, you know, Annie dies. And I'm wondering you know, is that a little girl? Is that Charlie asking her mother, you know, uh, for reassurance because the person who raised her, you know, the grandmother is gone? Or is that Payman wondering, you know, like, uh, who's uh, who's going to keep feeding me while I'm stuck in this kid's body? You know, like, I, <laughs> I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much of Payman we see early on through Charlie. I mean, I got to imagine that at least the moment where she, she cuts the bird's head off that that's, he had to have been there a little bit, right? I mean, that cult and he, they're all about decapitation. It seems, um, <laughs> God, yeah. The, the cranial trauma in Ari Aster's movies are, are, it's just yikes. Maybe yeah. Midsummer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Midsummer proved that he is, he is all about that head trauma. He, he's got issues with heads. Um, <laughs> God, the hammer. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh I, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, but that's something, you know, going back, like I, I've, I've puzzled over that, whether the, the movie is overtly supernatural or if we're meant to think that it's, it's less so. And the almost unanimously, anyone I've talked to about it, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, everyone reads it as being supernatural which is fine i mean it can be overtly supernatural and still deal with the same themes uh you know it's still about mental illness i think it's still about a a family disarray in the in the face of you know astonishing grief but um i don't know it's just it's hard for me to watch the movie and believe that everything is actually happening and i don't know why because usually i love supernatural flicks but there's something about this one and even you know watching midsummer again and then watching Hereditary again for this chat kind of just underscored that because, you know, when you're watching Midsummer, there is the constant threat of something supernatural happening. It feels like we're just right on the edge of something cosmic 
about to happen, you know, something uh, mm-hmm. horrific. And instead, it's like, no, they were all just really fucked up on drugs, and uh, that's that's pretty much it, you know. There is <laughs> that one shot in the trailer, um, and the only reason I remember it is because I showed a buddy the trailer, and he freaked out at this one shot. There's a moment in the trailer for Midsummer where somebody's feet lifts off the ground as though they're levitating. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, clearly this is a supernatural film. Shot appears nowhere in the damn movie. So I, I would, you know what? You're right. Yeah. So I'm like, what the fuck was that? Where, where was that moment? And, you know, I mean, having seen the movie, I would just assume that that's somebody hallucinating because again, everybody's fucked up on drugs. So, you know, when I watch Midsummer and I see that it's decidedly not supernatural, you know, that just kind of like that reinforces my own feelings about hereditary, uh, whether or not, you know, uh, the director himself would agree with me or not. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's interesting. I, I, I do think that, um, Ari Aster has like a, a strong, um, idea of what horror is. And I think he uses that in a very playful manner because, um, I, I think one of the other reasons that I wanted to talk about this movie, um, with someone was because back in like, uh, I don't remember. It was like maybe December. I was listening to this other podcast and they don't talk about horror movies or anything like that. But one of the subjects that they talked about was um, this this study, the scientific study of epigenetics. And it's way too science over my head for me. But what they talk about and it ties into this, I think it ties into hereditary and it ties into the idea of generational trauma. Um, trauma that is passed down through families and with the study of epigenetics, they think that that actually gets at impacts cellular activity and the trauma can be transferred to um, a child and passed down through through generations. They do, were doing studies on like um, people in concentration camps. They were looking at like studies on on slavery and how that kind of stuff would affect people generations down the line and one of the studies that i found when i was doing some digging about this talked about union union army soldiers who were and weren't prisoners of war and they determined that the sons of those pow's were more likely to die young than those who weren't from a parental unit that was in a pow despite the fact that the sons were born after the war and didn't experience it directly and so they were kind of like digging into this idea and it's, it's a new kind of field that I've, I've, that I've noticed, but digging into this evidence that maybe trauma is passed down through hereditary means through genes, through that kind of stuff. And I thought that like, just kind of made me look at the movie in a whole new light as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that is, (laughs) I, I, one, that's amazing. And I need to look into that because, uh, especially having a grandfather who was a POW twice over. Um, so I have concerns. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, although, you know, the man lived until he was 90. So I, you know, I, I have my, well, there you discussed. go. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean that, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that because of everything our family has gone through from one generation to the next, that this is merely an extension of that trauma and all of the ingrained mythology that that madness brought to her family was sort of passed along to her. And, you know, I even feel like the the movie bears that out in the final act in such a way that, you know, you can't say that the movie is 100% through the eyes of Annie. Uh, hers is not the only point of view that we spend time with. And yet like 90% of the movie is her, you know, we occasionally check in with, uh, um, you know, Gabriel Burns character is his name, dad. I think his name's dad. Um, you know, we occasionally check in with Peter, you know, we, we occasionally move away from Annie. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, it's Annie's film, it's Annie's story. And yet in the final 10 minutes, the baton is passed to Peter and all of a sudden he is living out all of her fears and he is living out like all the horrors that have been haunting her. Now, if everything is real and everything is supernatural that's happening on screen, then of course, I mean, it just makes sense that the cult would move from her to him. That was the the plan, you know, since the beginning. But if it's merely a matter of, you know, this trauma 
and you know uh, sort of visiting it himself upon you know the, the family members then the ending of the movie to me sort of like reinforces that idea I think by showing that it's being passed you know from one person to the next much as the point of view of the movie is very much being passed from Annie to Peter um, even though again you know Peter's point of view is certainly served throughout you know the movie uh, a couple of times but I don't know. I could ramble about this for probably an hour. I don't want to take up the entire chat with my my feelings on the title and the, <laughs> the nature of the haunting. But, well, but but it does. Bug but me. I kind of think that that's yeah. I, I get that, and I, I kind of actually think that that's that's kind of a, a good thing because I think isn't that what art's about? Isn't that kind of like you bring to the table um, your thoughts about it, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the director's intention is it's it's the audience's perspective of that filtered through their own um expectations and 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 life stories that they come up with um their own personal analysis of the story so i don't i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that at all (laughs) i think it actually says that the that hereditary is a brilliant movie (laughs) it really is and the fact that you know i i mentioned it earlier but the fact that the movie's so heavily meditates on grief and the sort of various ways that it manifests itself, you know, through each of the characters, you know, uh, Annie is somebody who just sort of, you know, she gets it out. She rages, she cries, she wails, you know? Um, and so one thing, speaking, speaking of, of her crying and wailing this time that I watched it since I, since seeing Midsummer, I saw so many, little callbacks to this movie the way she the way annie is wailing when she's like on her hands and knees after charlie's death is just like um i don't remember i forget her name is but the lead character in midsummer when she's you know wailing and all the women are around her there's like that callback to that and like the there's there's a scene in this movie where the camera is following something and then it kind of flips upside down just like when in midsummer they're they're driving through that that and there's a big sign in the forest and that kind of sign flips upside down and you're following them upside down for a bit there's all these little callbacks to that that i i I think that this movie has a lot of like well i mean obviously it has thematic uh because it's about grief but i think there's a lot of those little tiny easter eggs that he has peppered through um the two movies well even down to the ending you're right like well i should say okay midsummer has only been out for what about a month month and a half I will say, spoiler warning for Midsummer. if you haven't seen it, skip ahead about 90 seconds. I, I would not want to ruin that movie for anybody, and I can't uh, claim that you should have seen it by now because it hasn't been out that long. But, um, you know, with Midsummer, much like Hereditary, they both end in a celebration of sorts. And, uh, you know, I remember watching Midsummer, and the very night that I did, I remember seeing somebody posting uh, images from both movies, and the images they chose were, uh, were Peter at the very end with the crown, and, um, oh, God, uh, you're right. I can't remember her name either. That's terrible. But, um, you know, the lead from uh, Midsummer with, you know, as the May Queen. And it's like, you know, both movies end in a celebration. Uh, one ends with a king. One ends with a queen. Uh, both movies deal with grief. Both movies feature lots of cranial trauma. Uh, both movies feature sounds that anyone can make that act like friggin' earworms. They'll run in your head over and over <laughs> until you make the sounds to exercise them. You know, in Hereditary, it's... And in, uh, you know, Midsummer, it bugged the hell out of me. It was the, uh, what is it, the... Uh... <gasps> yeah. <Yep. laughs> so, I don't... The, the movies definitely feel like companion pieces. If he doesn't make another movie to sort of round out that own personal trilogy of his, I think these movies are perfect mirrors to one another in a way you know even down to the tones you know both movies are obviously grim especially by their final acts but you know hereditary is so heavy and so oppressive whereas midsummer is actually kind of fun and funny uh for long stretches of the film and um you know, and it's light in a way that uh, Hereditary isn't. Hereditary seems constantly bathed in darkness, whereas Midsummer is very much a daylight horror film. You know, I I, I love that they complement one another in that way. And I think you're entirely right. Yeah, all of the, the callbacks. I never would have thought about the wailing between the two, uh, even though, I mean, my God, you know, the sequence where um, we hear Annie discovering uh, Charlie's body. Uh, and then the, the sequence where the lead in Midsummer, you know, uh, she calls her boyfriend and you just hear her 
screaming and crying and how that stitches together two different scenes and hereditary the same crying stitches together three different scenes in three different time periods all at once it's just brilliant and also horrifying to see such you know grief portrayed so nakedly on screen it's it's you know you don't see that that often because i i wonder if people are afraid to try and portray that for fear of you know, uh, uh, um, y- you know, the audience sort of like not being able to confront that, not being able to deal with that or feeling too confronted rather. And, you know, giggling ultimately or not being able to take it seriously because they're getting too much thrown at them. But he just does it like a champ, I think. He does. He really goes for it. And it, it's interesting that you bring that up because I was I was thinking back to the first time I saw Hereditary in the movie theater and I was uncomfortable with um the wailing and like how much it, it lingered on 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 Annie just like on the ground just bawling this like painful wail and then again towards the end when when Peters gets like all terrified and, and starts like crying it, it, it it's this like it makes you confront that grief in ways that I don't think as you said cinema is very brave to do and then he does that again in in midsummer in a way that like people were actually kind of snickering a little bit in when when her danny i figured out her name is danny when she's like bawling towards the end and like it's it's just he isn't afraid of just sticking in that moment and 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 trusting his actors to sell it and i think that's that's interesting i and it's a thing that you don't really see that much in cinema it's a very sort of um you know, look at this, you know, consider this. Mm-hmm. We will not cut away. We're even going to cut to a completely different scene. And I'm still going to make you consider this person's pain and this person's grief. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of, um, God, uh, I haven't watched this in ages, but, uh, have you ever seen the television series, uh, six feet under? Oh my gosh. Yes. It's one of the, Oh my God, one of the greatest series and uh, hands down, I think objectively it has the greatest ending any TV show ever had. I, I, I would, I would argue with anyone on that, but, uh, early on, it might've been the first episode or the second episode. Um, the Peter Krause character, uh, it's been the ages since I've seen it and I feel terrible that I can't remember his name. Um, but he is sort of coolly observing uh you know a funeral taking place and then comparing that to his time overseas when he saw a funeral happening on a beach and he said the difference was you know they brought the uh you know the coffin ashore and then the family members would just throw themselves on top of the coffin and scream and cry and wail and beat their chests and beat the coffin and just get all of it out and how he Mm -hmm. couldn't help but feel that that was so much more healthy than what we do here, which is everyone has to be reserved. Everyone has to sit in place. Nobody needs to make a scene. Or if you do cry, just cry quietly, you know, don't, don't make too much of a show of it, you know? And, uh, in a way that's what these movies kind of remind me of. They're, they're not mannered in the way that they show just that sort of horrible emotion, you know? Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, I, I started thinking um, this last weekend I went to go see not a horror movie, but I went to go see The Farewell. And um, it was interesting because um, I, I'm not too, too familiar with Chinese culture. But one of the things that they they focused on is how when there's something sad going on that you have to express that emotion and that they will actually there's actually professional criers that people hire over there to to heighten the, the the crying mood that they will just be wailing as they're walking through the graveyard honoring the deceased and it's it's one of the it made me kind of uncomfortable in the movie theater and, and kind of laugh a little bit because i think you're right i don't think we as a, as a culture here in america um really tackle grief in a way that other cultures cultures do and i think that's something that that ari has done here for sure and makes it seem so, you know, uh, of course, you know, just on a, on a level of, you know, an audience member watching the movie, certainly it feels confrontational. But at the same time, the way he portrays it, it is the the most normal thing, you know, the most natural reaction for those characters to have in those moments. And I, I think that's kind of brave in a way for him to take those risks with those moments instead of sort of, you know, playing a little bit 
you know, safe, you know, reining it in just a bit, you know, uh, instead, my God, you just go for it. I mean, hell, in in Midsummer, again, a minor spoiler, but like her grief leads us into the opening credits sequence and the music that scores it. Like, I, you know. It's, oh, my gosh. It's so it was, that was, it was, that was, I was, that opening, uh, cold open, the whole scene leading up to the, the title was just uh, it was perfection, but, but man, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I, I feel like we just keep gushing about Midsummer, but like thinking back on it, I, it's so tied to, to hereditary and, and the points that, that he's making that, um, it seems impossible not to now. Right. Absolutely. Oh, wow. I don't know if listeners can hear that or if you can hear that, but I am sitting in the middle of a crazy thunderstorm. That kind of feels perfect in a way. So, uh, <laughs> I was wondering podcast. what that was. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear any loud, you know, booms, that is, that, uh, that is totally the thunder. My God. But, uh, but yeah, you know, and I love that out of the characters, you know, we get completely different reactions to that grief. You know, the characters deal in very different ways. You know, Annie is somebody who who deals with it, you know, and she doesn't sort of she doesn't seem to be holding anything back. Whereas Peter, you know, the son is sort of, you know, he's mostly catatonic or quiet or reserved. Uh, you know, when he's scared about something else, then, you know, his, his uh, he, he can certainly uh, become lively then. But otherwise, when it just comes to the fallout of his sister's death and specifically having caused it, you know, it, it he doesn't contend with it in the same way that his mother does. Except, you know, he has like one anxiety attack. And then we have, you know, Burns' character. I was joking that his name was Dad earlier. His name's Steve. He, man, I don't know what to feel about this character. I, the first time I saw it, I respected that character as somebody who was doing the best he could to maintain control of himself and everyone around him. With every subsequent viewing, I become a little more annoyed with him. Like, he, he, he seems so ineffectual in a way, and I'm sure he's grieving in his own way, but his sort of inability to support his family in any meaningful way just grated and think of the dinner scene which i would love to talk about here in a second but you know he's just like in the middle of all of this you have these two characters who you know one is raging and one is just in one very deft blow you know uh, cuts her open you know and then you just have you have gabriel Byrne like okay guys we're stopping this you know it's done if you could just you know just stop it it'd be great if you but at the same time you know i will give him this he's still a human being, you know, Aster makes him a three dimensional character. And I love that he is actually given that one quiet moment in the film where he's in his car and he finally just breaks down. And it's the first time in the film near its end where Steve is kind of remotely relatable, but uh, I don't know. He just, I love Gabriel Byrne. I think his performance is amazing. Uh, and it's especially amazing in that in a movie with a lot of showy performances, he did a lot of great work by doing very little uh, when in fact, I mean, he was showing little, but doing a lot, you know, and I, I think he's brilliant, but the dad just, I don't know. He, he intermittently like inspires sympathy, but also annoys the hell out of me. So the first time I saw the movie, I, I felt really bad for him because here's a guy trying to keep his family that is just imploding together. But like the more, the more times I've seen it, I think that I've seen it now five or six times with, with this last viewing, I, I get I like you. I get more and more annoyed, more and more annoyed with him because he seems very like the kind of waspy um, white man. That's like, we, I don't want to talk about any of these problems. We have all these problems that just push him down and let's not talk about them. And of course, they erupt because no one wants to address them. And they erupt in like really powerful moments, like like the dinner scene that you were just talking about that that scene, man, I talk about the most uncomfortable dinner scene I've probably ever seen on, on film where like I'm both, you need to to calm down. (laughs) This is your kid. And it just, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those situations that like, just, it it just, I, it's one of those, I don't, I don't have words to describe it, (laughs) you know, but he, he just seems so interested in, in pushing down the past throughout the entire movie with like, 
in the beginning when he finds out that, you know, the family's uh, or the, the grandmother's grave has been uh, desecrated and the body's missing. Like he doesn't want to tell anyone about it. You know, we're just going to keep it quiet, keep it quiet. And you can't do that for some of the trauma that this family has has faced. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it, I definitely want to talk about that dinner table sequence. But the uh, it's funny to me that Steve is somebody who. It's his family, certainly, but when it comes to blood, he stands apart from everybody in that household when it comes to what the real threat of the movie is, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. And so he isn't directly threatened. He doesn't realize that, of course. Uh, but, you know, he is left alone. He is, you know, it seems like Payman and the cult, they're kind of, the, you know, they're just uninterested in him, uh, likely because he's so ineffectual in his own way. Like, he's not going to fuck up their plans. He can barely, you know, stop an argument from happening in his home or at least dive in and try and help the situation, you know. So what <laughs> what kind of problem is he going to present to, you know, the cult's master plan? But... You know, it's funny to me that he is left unharmed for the bulk of the movie while he is in his own way trying to be supportive, not in any arguably genuine way, but at least he is he's there with a kind word and he's saying the stuff that he feels like he knows he should be saying like at the dinner table. He's saying, "Okay, we're done. We're done with this, you know, at least, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. He's probably just trying the least amount possible. But it's funny to me that it's he isn't affected by all of the supernatural goings on until he finally gives up. He finally just says I'm not doing this. I can't do this anymore. I quit. You know, he, he doesn't actually say I quit, I don't think. But that's the moment where he finally just doesn't even pretend anymore. He's just so done with this situation. I mean, his wife, who is, from at least his point of view, if he doesn't believe any of this, and we know that he doesn't, then from his point of view, he is dealing with a very mentally ill woman who's the woman he's meant to love. You know, that is his wife. He has, you know, they, they have a family. And she is you know, professing her love. And she is obviously at this point where she is making at least to her own mind, like a huge sacrifice. And she's saying goodbye to this guy. And the most he can muster is I'm not doing this with you anymore. And that's the moment when he burns, you know, that's the moment when the movie is finally and fully done with him, you know, and he, he goes out arguably worse than anybody else in the film. Uh, maybe not the grisliest, but I mean, Charlie died pretty quick. Annie probably wasn't even in her own body when she uh, she started uh, sawing on her head. But <laughs> but Gabriel Byrne, you know, Steve, Dad, um, you know, he burns, I think, for his sins in the movie. And um, And again, it's not that I have no sympathy for him. I mean he's a human being. He was probably, he was confronted with a hell of a lot, you know, five minutes prior, he was looking at a headless body in his attic that his wife, you know, I'm sure he thinks probably had something to do with. I get how he could get to that point, but it's, I I just found that interesting that the moment he gives up is the moment that he, he dies. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but, but you're right. And, and yeah, I, I mean, on one hand, I have a lot of empathy for him because when, when Annie is at the grief counseling and she's basically listing all of her family's problems, I mean, you got to imagine that she has told Steve, dad, these problems, and he knows her family history. And so he's probably just saying, ah, fuck, this is just happening to my wife now. And I see where this is going to go because we saw where it went with, with her mom and her brother and her father. And, (laughs) you know, so on, on that hand, I, I definitely have some empathy for his situation. But, man, how ineffective can you be? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and Byrne, I think, plays that beautifully. I think it would oh, have fantastic. been... Oh, fantastic. It would have been so easy to turn him into a bit of a cartoon. You know, it would have mm-hmm. been so easy to make him, you know, arguably even a bit of a villain. Uh, or at least somebody that the audience would jeer. And I never quite got to that point. You know, he feels like a, he feels real, you know, all the characters feel real, even for as crazy as the situations get. And then, my God, that dinner table sequence, you know, I, it starts like, you know, the moment they're seated around that table, it feels like a powder keg. And it's funny how, you know, the two men, uh, 
are sort of seated on the same side and Annie is stranded mm-hmm. by herself on the other side. Um, you know, and there's this feeling that the men have kind of moved on seemingly while Annie obviously hasn't. And there kind of seems to be a resentment on both sides over this. I mean, from her, like, you know, you almost get this feeling like, how dare you two just sit there, you know, and eat dinner like nothing has happened. Whereas with the two of them, it's like, my God, we're not going to get back to normal unless she finally starts to deal with it, you know? And so, you know, it feels like that match getting lower and lower and lower to the point where everything is going to explode. And of course, my God. Well, and picking back, picking, picking, oh my gosh, piggybacking on that. When I I think she, she needs to talk about it and she probably doesn't understand why no one wants to talk about it, which is, I think why she ends up in the beginning going to that, that grief meeting because she's not getting that kind of discussion with her family. She's not getting that kind of closure or that kind of verbalization that, that she herself needs. And so at, at when that when the, the dinner scene happens and you're right, the match, you can just see it lowering and lowering and lowering to the to the to the keg. And she screams at one point, nobody admits anything they've done. Nobody wants to talk about anything. No one ever wants to um to face the facts of the family. They just want to keep pushing it down. And so I think that that Ari has created such an interesting dynamic with with character motivations that that scene just kind of explodes it all. And we we actually see what each how each character is handling the grief in that in that particular moment. That's just I the fact that none no one on this has been was nominated for an award just blows my mind because yeah, uh Tony Collette is fantastic, but like you said, Gabriel Burns is 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 amazing and Alex does such a phenomenal job. Like it, this movie would not work if you didn't have the cast that it does. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it's funny what you're talking about with that scene and where it goes. I, uh, um, it, it's funny. The, the movie is only what uh, a year old, a little over a year old. But rewatching the film again, specifically now, you know, at this time in my life, you know, the the scene really struck me in a different way. I mean, obviously, watching it the first time, I understand where the characters are coming from. But I, you know, <laughs> looking into the movie, we we have people here who just needed to communicate you know they're meant to care about one another and circumstances destroy that and yet if they just talked you know talked damn it not Mm -hmm. texted not half-hearted communication but really talked then they might have salvaged what was there but they didn't and that resentment just grew and festered and eventually exploded and uh, one person winds up behaving a bit like a monster. And I, I I, think everyone knows the importance of communication. Sure, Lord knows most people can lecture others when it comes to communication, but to actually put that into practice, to have the, um, you know, courage to do that, it's tough. Uh, you know, I've been on either side of that, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes with the same person, you know, not communicating, wanting communication that never comes. Uh, and it, it cuts either way. You know, I've I've been the one yelling and pounding the dinner table figuratively. And I've also been the person sitting quietly and just seething and refusing to really speak except when to cut the other person with my words. Uh, you know, right. maybe not so figuratively. But it, if people just talked, they'd save themselves the pain of the ruin that lack of communication brings. But I, I often wonder if some people don't prefer those small miseries, you know, uh, mm-hmm. ha- having them and uh, eh, sharing them. Um, I, I hope not, but uh, you know, <laughs> God, that went, to a weird place but you know that but that scene brought up a lot in a way that it hadn't the first time around and it's funny how movies can change uh with you as as you get older and have other experiences of course the movies don't change at all it's just us but uh Mm -hmm. you know watching that sequence again where everyone is just sitting silently and you just want to say just fucking speak just talk to one another and 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 you know, by the time it gets vocal, it's too late because it's all been bottled up. It's all festered. It's all gone bad. And then, of course, it, it, it's not talking anymore. It's not communication. Exploding like that doesn't really bring about any resolution. It's just more hurt piled on top of hurt piled on top of hurt. And uh, 
I don't know that that scene really, you know, I mean, the first time around I watched it and it's an amazing scene in a film and it's uh, it's <laughs> it is uh, a, a one scene demo reel of the power that Tony Collette can bring to a movie. And yeah, it is absolutely a uh, uh, a crime that she wasn't even nominated. But um, but watching it again, you know, it the scene meant something different to me and it kind of. Uh, I don't know. It it cut me in a way that it didn't the first time around, but uh but ain't that art though. Um Yeah. But for yeah. sure. Anyway, sorry, movie, back to the scene. Uh what did you make <laughs> of uh what did you make of Peter's accusation at the very end, you know, after her huge sort of display and that amazing sort of just you know, raging at her son? You know, she sits down and everything calms down, you know, and then he just very quietly says, she didn't want to go to that party, mom. So why was she there? And it's just in two little sentences, he absolutely like, uh, you know, doesn't destroy her, but it had to have been utterly devastating, you know, and I don't know what, what did you make of that? Do you feel like Peter is not necessarily right to have said that given what came before, but do you think he's right period with that accusation? Well, I, I think that that probably operates on a couple different levels. I think on one, on one hand, it's the characters probably vocalizing the fact that, you know, everything that's, that's happening here, no one is in control of it. And I, I think that that kind of ties into the theme that I, that I kind of take from it, that, that it's a tragedy because no one can can stop this ultimate ending that's going to happen. They are just immovable. And so I think he's vocalizing that. But on the more practical and realistic side, man, it just – the way he says that does as much damage as her entire <laughs> explosion. Like he just – he cuts to the core because the, the, at the end of the day, I, I do think that – as much as she wants people to take um, admit what they've done, I don't think she wants to look at herself in the way that she has maybe pushed that pushed that into being as well. So, like, I, I, I mean, he's kind of right, but uh, just really, oh, that hurt. But, <laughs> but it kind of reminds me of another moment in the movie that just really the moment that actually shocked me the most was not the decapitation. It was not the ending. It was not any of that. It was the quiet moment where it ultimately she was dreaming. But when Annie is standing oh over God. Peter's bed and she says the words, you know, basically, I don't remember exactly what she says, but it's basically I didn't want you, you know, and then <laughs> you she slaps weren't... her hand over, hands over. Yes. Her and she realizes that there are things that you can't take back. And yes, luckily for her, this was a dream. But like you see a side of her that just like it for me, that was like a gut punch when, when she says that. And then you see her reaction to saying that it just, oh, the words that we can say and that are said in this movie, just uh, it's 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 depressing, <laughs> really. You know, it's funny. Two things uh, brought up by you mentioning that I one is the fact that she feels the need to apologize for the words that she says in her dream. Like mm -hmm. she, you know, one could argue that it's, you know, she's apologizing for the words at the dinner table, but the fact that the scene, you know, sort of, uh, you know, so directly comes after her initial dream sequence, you know, when she leans over her son and says, I'm sorry about the things I said, get up, you know, like <laughs> I, I almost feel like she's apologizing for what she said in her dreams. She is so very yes. sorry that she said them even there, you know, but also, you know, supporting the supernatural case for the movie is the fact that she said she tried to stop the pregnancy. She tried to have an abortion. She tried so mm -hmm. many things and none of them worked. And it's like, well, why didn't they work? Is it just, is it mere, you know, is it circumstance or is it the fact that like, I, you know, is Payman willing this potential uh, host to be born no matter what? And that in itself is kind of incredibly creepy in its own way. Well, and I, I think that, that probably also ties into the the more because I, I think you can look at hereditary in, into the title in two different ways. You can look at it as you know this this mental illness or the, the generational trauma or um, all this kind of stuff that gets passed down through family that ends up like destroying a family. But then on the other side, you have the supernatural thing that basically this this outcome was predicated before. 
Peter was even born that, you know, that her that Annie's mom tried to put payment into Annie's brother. And that's why he committed suicide, that like all of this stuff is predicated before the movie even starts, that it is even in that aspect, the supernatural aspect, it's hereditary that this is going to happen. And I that's it's just ugh, it's 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 very nihilistic in that in that regard. And there's um going back to that that classroom when when he when the teacher is asking is it more tragic or less tragic if Heracles ever had a choice in the matter and the girl says that she thinks it's more tragic because if it's all inevitable that means the characters had no hope they never had hope because they're all just hopeless they're all pawns in this horrible hopeless machine and if you use that as a metaphor for this movie it just uh, it's the probably one of the most nihilistic movies i've ever seen if you think about it in that in those terms <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I cannot argue that, and I can't think of a better way to to uh, start wrapping up. I think we've just about reached our time. Can I ask? Do you have any final parting thoughts on Hereditary? Um, no, I think we kind of covered pretty much all of it. <laughs> uh, if if you haven't seen it, I don't know why you're still listening to this. You should be watching it right now. Watch it. Watch it, people. Watch that, and then. Get to the theaters and watch Midsummer. It should have done far better than what it did. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I think agree. you can still catch it out there if you're lucky. So, uh, now, sir, can I ask where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Sure, um, I tweet a lot um, at Gaily Dreadful on Twitter. Um, that's where you can find me. Uh, my website is is GailyDreadful.com, and right now a lot of it is is my content. But moving into this year, I'm hoping to add a, bun- a bunch more of LGBTQ voices on it. And so look forward to uh, hopefully more analysis on films and more reviews and more of that. But thanks for having me, Jinx. I really appreciate being here. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I, I it was a great chat, and I. Uh... I I appreciate that you chose this movie. It was a blast to talk about. Same here. All right, and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments section below, yell at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Castles in the air And feathered canyons everywhere